0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page and on Twitter at burn555555. If you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online events in 2021 and we also host an online book club for anyone looking to discuss books with other wonderful book lovers. Today, I am interviewing Bella Ellis about The Diabolical Bones. Bella is the Bronte-esque pseudonym of an acclaimed author of numerous novels for adults and children. She first visited the former home of the Bronte sisters when she was 10 years old, and she embarked on a lifelong love affair with Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, their life, their literature, and their remarkable legacy. I hope you enjoy our interview. Welcome, Bella. How are you today? I am good today. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing well too, all things considered. So I'm thrilled to pieces to speak with you because I just love this series and I think it's so fascinating and there's so much more I want to know about it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. That's really lovely to hear.
0: The Diabolical Bones is number two in the series about the Bronte sisters. So would you like to talk a little bit first about the series generally, kind of how you got started, and then we can kind of dig into the Diabolical Bones?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's book two of the Bronte sisters mysteries. The series imagines that before they were renowned authors, the Bronte sisters were amateur sleuths. It's a kind of a whimsical idea, but it's also, it comes from my lifelong love of the Bronte sisters and their work, almost lifelong. I read the first Bronte book, Jane Eyre, when I was about 10 and I have loved them ever since. Read their books a lot. I'm a passionate fan and collector of Bronte editions. But about three years ago, I was writing another novel set in Howarth. So just in the heart of Bronte country and as I was writing it, I suddenly the idea just popped into my head of the Bronte sisters solving mysteries. I don't know why. And I quickly went and Googled it. Because I felt sure that somebody had already written this, this idea, but they had not. And I was really excited. And I thought, this is something that I would love to do. And so I sort of stuck a pin in the idea and just hoped while I was finishing the book I was writing that it would still be available for me to write when the time came. And it was, luckily. So what it does is, the series does is it melds fact and fiction. So all the biographical details of their life are accurate with a couple of tiny tweaks Here and there, but I always put everything that's not a hundred percent on the nose in the author's note in the book. And I just weave mystery fiction in and around the biographical facts of their lives. And I have to say, I love it so much. It's just an utter joy to me.
0: Well, how exactly did you decide that they would be detectors? I think that's such an interesting premise, considering the time period and just all of it. And then I know from reading your author's notes that you had to kind of find one period in time where they could all be together.
1: Yeah. So, well, the the, the idea for them being detectors, it came because I was, while I was writing the other novel, which I write under my real name, Rowan Coleman, it had a mystery thread in it, a literary mystery thread. And I thought it might be fun, as it's written over three time periods, I thought it might be fun to have the Brontes trying to solve the same mystery as the contemporary heroine is. But the minute I had the thought of the Brontes solving mysteries, I sort of thought, no, that's too good an idea. It really really has to have its own book, if not book series. Once I decided that, then I had to find the right time to begin the series when they were all under one roof again. So the series begins in September 1845. And it's just after Branwell and Anne have been sent home from Thorpe Green. Branwell's been sent home in disgrace because he had an affair with Mrs. Robinson, his boss's wife, and Anne had to resign. She was working there as as a governess, and she obviously had to resign after her brother disgraced her. Charlotte has come home from Brussels, where she was working for Constantine Heger in his school as a teacher. Constantine who she had a deep deep well documented unrequited love for and Emily was just at home anyway keeping looking after her dad and keeping house so the four siblings are together again for the first time in quite a long time and that's the backdrop against the first book in the novel The Vanished Bride in the series
0: that's just fascinating to me that they all did end up as adults back under the same roof
1: yes it definitely wasn't the plan i think they they tried really hard to to branch out and to earn money. They all were very aware that they had to earn their own keep because as soon as their father died, their the house and his, the parsonage and his income would be gone. And so they had to be able to have something to fall back on. And of course, they never expected him to outlive all of them, all of his children and his wife, poor man. So Branwell really was tasked with getting a decent career together in order to look after his sisters and didn't quite pull it off as I think we know. They tried really hard to be teachers, to set up their own school, to be governesses but at the end of the day it just it was too miserable and too difficult for them and so Charlotte hit upon the idea that they should try and make money from their writing.
0: Well, and I loved that portion of the book that you kind of foreshadow what each of the sisters is going to be writing about later in both of the books. Their personality really shines through, but also what they're going to do when they're done with the time period that you're in.
1: Yeah, so that's part of the fun, actually, for me as a big Bronte geek is sort of reverse engineering the plots of their novels and trying to imagine... in some incidents and plots in the mysteries that may have contributed to the plots of their novels. There are a few documented inspirations for the plots of, of, say, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, but a lot of it we just don't know. There's a lot about the Bronte's life that we don't know. We feel like we know a lot because there are so many letters from Charlotte to Ellen Nussie, her friend, who was supposed to burn all her letters but didn't, thank goodness. But actually, we know about 5% of what they got got up to during their lifetimes. So there's an awful lot of time, well, which I
0: decide to fill with stories and mysteries and adventure. That's what I was just going to say. And that's good because then you're able to fill some of that with their lives as detectors.
1: Exactly. And in 1845, that was just when there was a London force of detectives that would, had just been set up. It, and it was the fir- they were the first of their kind, really, in the UK, definitely. And perhaps in the world? I'm not 100% sure. I'd have to check that. But that was in the Times at the same period. So that's what Anne is reading when she discovers that woman has gone missing from a nearby manor house and they all decide they're going to be detectors as well and see if they can find out what's happened to her.
0: And it's sort of funny to that, that term detector versus detective, but obviously that was the term that was being used then. But I always have to go back and think about it again and say, okay, it's detector, not detective. To be honest, the
1: the, the sort of the phrase detective just hadn't been coined. It was so new. And I I thought about them calling themselves detectives. And it just seemed to me more natural that they would say they were detectors, And so that's what they've always been. It wasn't in general usage. It was just something that I hit upon.
0: (laughs) But I like that you didn't use detective since that word wasn't coined yet. So no, I think it's perfect. It just takes me a minute sometimes to recall detector versus detective. Why don't we talk a little bit about the diabolical bones? Let's do it. So you tell me kind of your summary of it for people that haven't read it yet.
1: So The Diabolical Bones is book two. It takes place in December of 1845, just before Christmas. And there's a discovery, a gruesome discovery at a place called Topwooden's Hall, which is right up on the top of the moor and they find the bones of a child concealed in the chimney of the house as soon as our intrepid sisters hear about this they want to find out more about the bones and where they came from and off they go marching in the snow because they've heard that the owner of Tupwoodens Hall is going to put the bones on display for people to look at and they're horrified by that because as far as they're concerned Whether the bones are 100 years old or a year old, they should be given a decent Christian burial. So off they go to retrieve the bones and make their feelings known, little knowing that they're about to step into their most dangerous mystery yet.
0: Well, where did your inspiration come for this particular mystery, the house and the bones being in the chimney and all of that?
1: So many places. So Top Withens is a real place. It's the geographical location for Wuthering Heights. So you can walk up to the top of the moors, as I've done many times. It's right on the top. It's an incredibly beautiful, beautiful spot. And it's also where the, the real building that was there was a farmhouse. But what Emily did when she was imagining Wuthering Heights is that she took houses that she knew, principally Pond and Hall, which is about a mile away, and High Sunderland House. And she sort of mixed them all up together and put them in her imagination on top of the moor in in Top Withens. So I've just basically done exactly what Emily did and created Top Withens Hall as a sort of a Wuthering Heights-esque setting for the beginning of the mystery. And it's very, very a snowbound mystery. Snow is falling heavily. It's very wintry. It's quite leans quite heavily into the Gothic. And as they discover the bones, they realise that actually they haven't been there for 100 years. They've only been there for about, I think it's about 10 years, since they had to have been put there after the Bradshaw, who owns the hall's wife, died. And so they realise it's a recent burial, and they wonder who the child is and what happened to it. And this kind of sets them off on the next mystery adventure. And it's a very dangerous adventure. They meet probably the most scariest of protagonists that they ever have met.
0: Definitely very scary. I was like, okay, I can't read some of this at night. Tell me about your research, because I mean, obviously, because you love the Brontes so much, it must have just been so much fun to do a deep dive into whatever you could find. And how do you kind of winnow down what you're going to use and what you're not going to use?
1: It's ever so hard, actually, to not to not put everything in because it's so interesting. They're such an interesting family. I suppose what I do is I look for tiny little facts and little bits of historical context that I can then extrapolate out into a wider plot for the novel. So with The Vanished Bride, I sort of knew that I was going to focus on what might have inspired Charlotte to write Jane Eyre. And then with The Diabolical Bones, it's very much Wuthering Heights inspired and it's very much about the brutality that can exist in human beings when they, they think it's love, but it's not love, it's brutality. And for the next book, I can't tell you too much about it, but it's based on a tiny, tiny little bit of the Bronte story, sort of Bronte adjacent story, really, which is true, but which has led them off on a whole new adventure to another part of the country. So it's very exciting.
0: Well, that was going to be one of my later questions was if there's going to be a third in the series and what it was about. So that's exciting. They're going to travel. They're going to travel secretly. Because they can't tell Papa, obviously. But they're going to see Ellen and
1: they're going to go and travel, uh, solve this mystery and help an old friend.
0: Well, that's wonderful to hear that there'll be a third in the series.
1: Yes, that definitely will be a third. I hope that there's, that there's going to be six in all.
0: Okay, so that's your plan, kind of long term, is to, to finish it out with six. Okay, well, that's a good number.
1: Very sadly, they all die <laughs> within less than 10 years of the opening of the book, so...
0: It is amazing that none of them lived very long lives.
1: It's so it's so tragic, and I think it's probably perhaps one of the reasons that they fascinate us so much. But it, it doesn't cease to be heartbreaking, really. They just had a very tragic life. Their mother died when they were all small children. They lost two sisters um, at Cowan Bridge, which was the inspiration for Lowood School in Jane Eyre. And then... Succumbed to well. First of all, actually, it was Branwell who, half drunk and half had typhoid, I think, but he couldn't stand up to it because he was so drunk. So he basically he died of alcoholism. And they say that at his funeral was where Emily caught tuberculosis, and she was dead within a month of Branwell and also contracted tuberculosis and died in Scarborough a very short time later, very tragically, very sad. And poor Charlotte, who used to walk around the table, at the beginning of The Vanished Bride, you see them walking around the table um, and that that's documented. We know that they did that. They used to walk around the table talking about their ideas. And their servant Martha said how sad it was to hear her walking around the table on her own after all of her siblings had gone. So she battled on for a good few more years and then finally was happy and married her father's curate, Arthur Bell Nichols, but sadly died when she was pregnant in 1855.
0: I didn't realize that Branwell and then Anne and, and Emily died so close in time to just reading your author notes and then kind of doing some more research about it, but I didn't realize it was that close together.
1: It really was. It must have been terrible, terribly shocking for all of them. And the reason that Anne is buried in Scarborough instead of in Howarth with her brothers and sisters is, is that was her favorite place in the world. And Charlotte wanted, took her to Scarborough, hoping, hoping that it might revive her, the sea air might revive her, but secretly knowing that she wasn't going to survive. And that she traveled to Scarborough when she was very sick with Charlotte and Ellen. And that's where she died. And Charlotte decided to bury her in Scarborough because she just didn't think her father could stand another funeral of one of his children. So it's incredibly tragic. It is
0: for both Charlotte and for the poor father.
1: And that's, I think actually that's part of why the Bronte Mysteries for me, because I love them. I love these women so much. And they were incredibly bright, creative, curious, brilliant women. And it just gives me a lot of joy to give them a bit more of a life. And even though it's a sort of fictional life, and well, it is a fictional life, and a sort of and a fantasy life, it just pleases me that in these books they are having all these adventures and peril and fun um, that they didn't have in real life
0: well and it's so fun to read the dialogue between them that you come up with and their relationships with each other did you have a favorite that you enjoyed writing of the three of them
1: People ask me. <laughs> I get asked that a lot, and I honestly don't have a favorite now because I I just love them all for their own individual sort of specialties. Really, I suppose I love Anne. she's very fierce and she's a real sort of social justice warrior, and she's absolutely determined to do the right thing at all times. And I love Charlotte because she's so incredibly resilient, even you know prior to losing her close brother and sisters nothing stopped her when they first sent their books out she sent out the professor and sent out Agnes Gray and Emily sent out Wuthering Heights and Anne and Emily got a book deal and the professor was rejected by everybody and you can imagine if your two sisters have got their books published and yours has been rejected it must feel dreadful but her response to that was to write Jane Eyre so I kind of love her for her resilience and her determination to carry on. And I love Emily. I I love my fictional Emily very, very much. I think generally people love Emily Bronte because she's mysterious. There's not a lot about her. She's she's we've got very few letters that she wrote. We've got her diary papers that she wrote with Anne. And we've got her poetry and one novel. And so she can almost be anybody for anyone. And my Emily is just crackingly good fun to write she's fearless she's blunt she doesn't care for social niceties at all and she's just as happy breaking into a manor house in the dead of night as she is happier actually than if she has to take tea with a nice lady
0: Well, and that must be an upside to not having a ton of information about them is that you can fill in, based on knowing their general personalities, you can fill in some really fun details.
1: Yeah, you definitely can. I mean, there are a few things that we know about Emily that give you a a strong lead on what she might have been like. She was famously not antisocial. She just didn't like people very much at all. She didn't want to travel at all. She refused to go to London with her sisters when they went to complain about Anne's book being listed as written by Curra Bell, Charlotte, she wouldn't go. But also she famously brought, bought thunder and lightning material to make a dress with. And I think that's such a wonderfully Emily thing. You can just see her in her thunder and lightning dress with the little lightning bolts and the thunderclouds pattern on it, storming up the moor
0: on a windy day. <laughs> I didn't realize. I knew they had written under aliases, but when I was looking up a little bit more about them to make sure I could speak with you about them well, I didn't realize that Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell had been their pseudonyms together. And that's interesting because it really ties in so much with their own names.
1: Yes, it is interesting. And there's so much speculation about where the pseudonyms come from, but nobody's ever really put a pin in it and and sort of Tied it down. Some people think it's because that just that year there were new church bells put into the tower in the church at Howarth. Other people think it's people that they knew and influenced them. I've chosen to make it their sort of cover story. So whenever they're going anywhere, they say they work for a solicitors company called Bell and Bell Brothers and Co. From there, they've chosen the the first names that sort of mirror their own Christian names. And of course, the pen name, Bell Ellis, is inspired by their pen names.
0: Oh, I love that. And of course, I should have picked up on it because I'm looking at it right now and I didn't. Okay, that's really fun. So you you chose the pen name then?
1: I did. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little hint towards my love for Emily.
0: Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked.
1: I, I I'm reading... So many books.
0: I <laughs> have, I read a lot of nonfiction for my research and
1: I'm reading a lot of Dickens at the moment, actually. And I'm just getting to the end of Oliver Twist, which amazingly, I've never read before and is actually really, really entertaining. I also just finishing a reread of Agnes Grey, which is a beautiful novel and first novel. It's a very beautiful. Very simple, but very contemporary and very direct. And actually, if you're an Austin, Jane Austen fan, and you're looking for your first Bronte novel, I would definitely recommend Agnes Grey because it's very, very be- beautiful, pure, gentle, quite realistic life of a governess, but romantic as well. In contemporary novels, my favourite books I've read recently is a thriller called The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean, who is a British author who lives in Sweden. But I know that that book is being published or has been published in the US and is really, really gripping. Quite a terrifying thriller. And also a brilliant book called Watch Her Fall, which is a thriller set against the backdrop of Swan Lake as a ballet by Erin Kelly. And I can't recommend it enough. It's absolutely amazing. Oh, both of those sound good. And I'm not
0: familiar with either one. I have only ever read Jane Eyre. I was having to kind of think back through all of that when, again, I was looking into some of the Bronte family and thinking about it. And I love Jane Austen and I have read and reread and reread and reread her books. But I'll have to pick up Agnes Gray then by Anne Bronte because I know I think the only one I've read is Jane Eyre. And then I saw the musical on Broadway a couple of times when it was out and it was really good.
1: Yeah, we didn't have the musical in the UK. I only found out about it recently when I was talking to a US book blogger who told me about it. And I was so excited. I immediately went and and downloaded it and listened to it. And I've been listening to it ever since.
0: Well, it was really good. And I am a huge Broadway fan, love to go to musicals. And it was funny because the woman sitting next to me, it was her 22nd time to see Jane Eyre. And it just always stuck with me because I was like, I think I'm kind of a diehard fan. And I was like, she put me to shame. She could sing every single word and she just loved it. But it was it was really good. I very much enjoyed it.
1: I really hope that lady's discovered the Bronte Mysteries. I think she'd like them. <laughs>
0: Oh, exactly. And unfortunately, that was a very long time ago. So I I wish I could connect up with her and tell her these are the perfect books for you. Well, Bella, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really appreciated your time. And I loved talking with you about the Bronte sisters.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute
0: joy to talk to you. Well, you too. And now I'm going to be out there recommending the Diabolical Bones to everybody I know as soon as it's out. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page, tell all of your friends about the podcast, and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Bella's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News.